Welcome, dear listener. This is Louis. I'm your host, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to another episode of The Cove. Today, we are talking privacy technology with Nico from The Elusive Project. Given the recent news of Tornado Cash being sanctioned, privacy tech has never been under more pressure. So I wanted to talk with Nico and hear his take on what Elusive is doing to be compliant and provide users with strong privacy, as well as how he sees the privacy battle playing out moving forward. Before we get started, I'd like to share a bit about our sponsor. Streamflow is the leading token distribution platform on Solana. With Streamflow's token vesting service, you have absolute control over the vesting schedule. Set the dates, add a cliff, set automatic withdrawals so that the vested tokens are dropped right into the recipient's wallet, set notifications to the recipient about the stream status and much more. Streamflow's contracts are audited and already have over 150 million in TVL from some of the strongest teams on Solana. If you're looking to set up vesting contracts, head over to streamflow.finance to get started today. It's my great pleasure to welcome Nico from Elusive onto the podcast today. Elusive combines privacy with safety by offering compliance in mind, next generation privacy solutions for a better Web3. What better time to discuss privacy than right now in light of the recent crackdown on Tornado Cash? Nico, welcome to the podcast. To kick things off, do you mind telling us a bit about how you came into crypto? I got into crypto back in 2015 or 2016, I think, uh, when I first read the Ethereum white paper. And I just thought this idea of being able to do, especially financial transactions in a trustless way across, you know, with people that don't necessarily need to trust each other, but just do any computation together was fascinating. Um, Start working at a security company that was doing crypto with trust execution environments, actually. So I think Solana Saga is very interesting in that sense as well. Um, yeah, and kept at it for a while until I realized that Ethereum, unfortunately, you can't really do anything like the original promise was just because the network isn't as fast as many people would like it to be and can get quite expensive. So that's sort of how I fell into Solana and yeah, have been in love with that ecosystem ever since. And at some point, presumably it Elusive kicked off. Could you give us a bit of a background about how that came came? Yeah, for sure. So that's actually an interesting story. Um, at Elusive, we, we are four co-founders. Um, and at the very beginning, there was actually three of us, which uh, was uh, Joy and Yannick and I, who actually met through university. And back then, I, was, I think this was probably like mid last year or so. Um, back then, I was still more so into the Ethereum, like I mentioned. Um, and Julian actually is the one who taught me about uh, Solana. And the way that started out is I grabbed lunch with him. Um, And he was telling me all about how great Solana is and how it's the chain of the future and so on. Um, And then at the end of the lunch, I said, hey, since, you know, uh, you seem to to like Solana and I think it's quite interesting. How about you pay your lunch, uh, part of lunch to me with with Solana or whatever, or some native token via Solana. Um, And then very quickly, we realized that this was going to be a little bit of an issue simply because um, he wasn't really fully comfortable, you know, sharing his public key with me because then through that, I'd be able to see how much money he has, what other transactions he's making, all of that. And so we thought, okay, you know, privacy is a problem on blockchains. Uh, what solutions exist for this? And we looked around and at the time on Solana, I don't think any existed yet. And so that meant he would have had to bridge over to Ethereum most likely, send it through Tornado Cash, but even sending through Tornado Cash would have been, you know, a bit annoying because he has to go to an external website, has to do all these extra steps. And so we started thinking to ourselves, okay, why not try building something that, you know, solves this problem of 
up until now, quite bad UX for trying to do private transfers. And so we sat down together with actually, you know, as mentioned, another guy called Yannick from that same group, um, started working on it a little bit and quickly realized that, you know, the tech for this, the zero knowledge, uh, zero knowledge proof technology has made great steps, just the UX has lagged behind. And so we started out and, you know, at first just started building a little prototype, uh, seeing if we could get it to work uh, on, on Solana. And yeah, toward the end of, uh, toward the beginning of this year, around April, uh, we actually then demoed like a little MVP, like a little prototype of like how that could look uh, at Solana, Miami actually. Uh, got tons of positive feedback there um, and basically just went from there and started doing this full time. Nice. And can you tell me a bit about the current stage of elusive development? What's the status quo? Where are you guys at right now? For sure. So yeah, the way Elusive is looking right now is we spent the past six months pretty much, uh, you know, chewing glass, like working hard on it. Um, yeah, and right now we're uh, we're building out the the basic transfer functionality along with uh, all the compliance solutions, uh, which I can tell you a little bit more about in a second. Yeah, and then we're going to be launching together with some of our very exciting partners uh, in about a month's time on Mainnet. Yeah. So you've already alluded to it. I'd love to hear a bit more details. Firstly, around you know, what privacy tech you're using to secure the transactions. Uh, and then love to hear about the KYC and compliance. And we'll get into Tornado Cash and what's been going on recently as well there, I think. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, the as mentioned with Elusive, essentially the big realization we had is that tech-wise, uh, zero-knowledge proofs, which is the core component of most privacy solutions and blockchains today, uh, have made amazing progress over the past years. and basically are in a state, in my opinion at least, where they're usable for, for production use, meaning that you don't just have these papers that theoretically describe how zero-knowledge proof can work, but you have tons of implementations to, to build off of um, that are fast enough that yeah, you can actually build raw products with them. Uh, but as mentioned, UX was, is and was still the biggest problem until now uh, because you know, I still like going back to Trano Cash because that was the first like, general purpose, or rather privacy solution on general purpose chain. Um, up until then, usually if you wanted your privacy, you would have even had to go to a separate chain altogether, like looking at Monero or Zcash or something like that. And for the average user, especially someone who's not into crypto, that's a huge problem. And a comparison I always like to draw there is HTTP versus HTTPS. Um, because, you know, more technical people or most people probably know that HTTPS, um, you know, is the more secure, is the more encrypted way to communicate with servers today. However, I assume if I would take my mom or someone very non-technical and tell them, hey, if you want to use HTTPS, uh, you have to download a different browser or you have to sign up on this website first for it. Most likely they'd say, ah, oh, that's too annoying. I'll just use HTTP simply because they don't know how important that technology is. And I think for privacy it's on, on blockchains, it's, just, it's the same thing. Most users care about privacy, but not to the point that they're willing to use a fully new chain or switch to using an external website for making their transfers or things like this. So that's why really UX was the key, key focus there. And when I say UX, we focused on basically three key components when we were building out Elusive. And those are price, composability, and compliance. Um, Price-wise, I think this one's you know, rather obvious. If you have to pay very high fees for, for making a private transfer, then people are less likely to use it. So for that sense, we're lucky to be building on Solana, which you know, it's a very efficient, very fast, and most importantly, very cheap chain. Um, in addition to also having design or protocol with that in mind. Um, and when I say design or protocol with that in mind, what I mean by that is that um, many protocols, uh, 
like for example uh, Zcash, essentially follow this this idea of having a shielded pool, um, which means you have sort of a, a second uh, private public key pair um, on chain basically stored uh, in, in a smart contract with a separate balance, um, which is a really great de uh, design decision because that allows you to do private transfers within that, but also allows you to uh, send to public addresses, so to say, and receive uh, into, 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 your private into your private key pair. Uh, however, some low problems with that, um, in our opinion at least, were that A, you have the initial setup step of having to create that new private public key pair um, on chain, which already makes, yeah, which adds a little bit of friction if you want to, to make a private transfer or want to receive money privately. And second, generally these types of systems also require you to make a proof when you're topping up your private balance on chain, when you're topping up the private balance held by your uh, key on chain. And every time you make a zero knowledge proof on chain, that's usually the thing that makes you slower, makes you more expensive. So we essentially design our system in a way where you don't have this private public key pair thing on chain. Um, and that essentially allows you to only have to do a zero knowledge proof when you're actually sending away from the smart contract to a recipient. So that means the way our infrastructure ends up looking then is that if you're a public key, like just a normal Solana public key, um, you can basically, yeah, create a private UTXO on-chain without actually needing to create a private account, so to say, on-chain within the elusive program, which allows you to save a zero-knowledge proof and also allows you to save the step where you need to create that uh, special key pair for that and still basically allows you to have that nice compatibility of sending from your private balance to a public recipient. And it, of course, allows you to uh, save costs. Um, second, and this also I think plays into what I was just mentioning, is we also think composability, like everyone in Solana, is an incredibly important part when we're building out a, uh, a privacy protocol. Uh, the reason for that is, is that uh, as maybe the more technical viewers have, are familiar with the term anonymity sense, which in privacy protocols is basically just, uh, since most privacy protocols have the idea of you have multiple inputs coming into the privacy protocol, and at some point you have other uh, inputs coming out of the privacy protocol. And then of course, if you have a lot of inputs coming in and less or a few inputs coming out, it becomes quite difficult to tell uh, which of these inputs basically uh, any of these outputs can be mapped to. And essentially this like large amount, hopefully large amount of inputs is called the anonymity set. And this is also a problem that when you're designing a privacy protocol at the very beginning, you sort of have the problem that for your first 20 users, they just don't get very good anonymity simply because there's you know 20 inputs, 20 transactions coming in or 20 different accounts on chain or something like this. And if one of them is sending money then from your privacy protocol, using chain analysis, you can already say, okay, that person must have been one of those 20 uh, inputs that anyone can see. So that meant we also wanted to essentially design a system where you, we don't have this like big disadvantage at the beginning where the first couple of users um, essentially have very bad privacy just because there isn't that many users yet. So for that reason as well, instead of taking the approach of uh, designing a protocol in a way where you go to elusive.io or you, know, you go to our website or something like this and, and use our website to make a private transfer, we really want to take the approach of making our protocol as composable as possible uh, with existing wallet providers, existing protocols and so on and have actually, and what we're gonna be launching on mainnet in about a month uh, we'll be launching actually directly integrated into uh, some of the biggest wallets in the ecosystem already, which will allow us to right from the get-go have access or rather give access to a large amount of user base 
uh, to start out with a big anonymity set right from the start. Yeah, and finally, another thing regarding composability that we think is really important as well um, is Solana Pay, which we think is one of the biggest applications of privacy as well. Because when you think about what's important for privacy, I think payments definitely is one of the first things that comes to mind. In fact, that's also what led us to start Elusive. Because generally, most people aren't comfortable that when they go to the coffee shop, buy their $5 coffee in the morning, um, revealing their whole financial history to the coffee shop vendor. And the inverse goes as well. The coffee shop vendor generally isn't comfortable revealing how much he's making every day from transactions to the, uh, to the sender uh, who's paying for his coffee. So for that reason, we also made sure that our protocol is fully compatible with the Solana Pay spec. So yeah, that's first two things, cost and composability that we focused on. And finally, compliance. Um, I'm not, you probably saw a couple of days ago, we uh, posted a little thread on essentially the compliance solutions we're, we're looking at. Yeah, and to give you a quick overview of those, uh, we essentially we designed a thing called proof of identity, which is basically being able to prove um, that you've been KYC or that you're from a certain country or something like this without actually revealing that information, so using zero-notch proofs. Uh, proof of origin, meaning that if you send a certain transaction uh, privately, being able to prove to an external party that a certain transaction did indeed come from you. Um, capping send amounts, which, yeah, as the name implies, is just setting a cap on how much you can send without you know, needing to require extra steps. And finally, a flagging system with which we can sort of uh, segregate anonymity set. Definitely, would be, I'll, I'll definitely be happy to tell more about any of those, but yeah, that's the broad overview of Elusive for now. Yeah, I like the way that you use the HTTP and HTTPS example, because I think traditionally in crypto, privacy has been somehow sort of had certain aspersions cast upon it, like it's only for criminals, it's only for people who are trying to hide sort of negative activities. Whereas if we think about privacy on, on the internet as it is these days, like people are very sort of, they expect that they can do transactions. For example, they can do e-commerce transactions and have their credit card and credit information you know, secured um, privately. So I think it's a really helpful way to frame that or to reframe that, so to say, uh, from being something which is nefarious to being something that should be expected. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so yeah, as mentioned, like, um, like you just said, I think of privacy on, on, uh, on blockchains, as you said, like HTTP, HTTPS, something that should be you know, a no-brainer, something that you need to have and not something that's there to, to protect criminals. Um, and the, I mean, in my opinion, Tornado Cash, like, they built an amazing thing because they were, you know, as far as I know, at least the first to really build a mixer really in a decentralized manner on a general purpose chain. Unfortunately, what ended up happening, or at least what you can see what ended up happening, is that oftentimes when you would have then a blockchain exploit, uh, some protocol would get hacked or money would be stolen on-chain in some manner. Unfortunately, they, they used Tornado Cash to, to launder that money out, which is, you know, which then unfortunately ended in the regulation from, from the US government that we saw a couple of days ago. And so we do think that you can find a good balance between uh, having that privacy and decentralization that Tornado Cash did such a great job at, but also moving a bit more in the compliance direction and making sure that uh, you know you provide a great user experience and a great product for people who care about privacy, but make it a bit more difficult for people who want to use it for you know for bad use cases to send money through there. And so for that, um, one thing that we think is quite interesting as well is 
proof of identity because that's sort of uh, the flip side to proof of origin. And what I mean by that is that generally until, until now, I think Trainer Cache also had this feature, is that if you were, were the sender, uh, you could easily prove that one of your transactions uh, was not illicit by simply showing, okay, um, my transaction used these secret parameters, um, this is what I encoded in my zero-notch proof to prove that I have access to some secret funds on chain. Um, and then if an authority comes along, you can tell them, okay, here, let me reveal those parameters to you, and then you can compare them with the zero-notch proof that, is stored, uh, that was submitted uh, in a certain transaction, and through that you can know that this transaction came from me. And also you can do the flip side. You can show these are all the parameters um, I've, ever, I've ever generated, um, and through them I can show that a certain transaction did not in fact come from me. However, you sort of have the flip side as well, that if you're the recipient of a transaction, there's not too much you can do to prove that you, know, you weren't involved in, in some illicit transaction or essentially protect yourself in a way. Uh, which is kind of a problem because imagine, let's say, you know, a couple years down the line, uh, Amazon.com, for example, decides to accept cryptocurrency, um, and they would want to do so in, in a private manner because uh, you know, they wouldn't want all the competitors to know right away like, what their address is, what they're doing with their money, and so on. Um, so they decide to implement privacy, but then they need to protect themselves from people you know, having stolen money or having otherwise uh, dirty funds, so to say, and using them to buy things on Amazon. And so for that, uh, what we propose is something called proof of identity, where the idea is uh, we have so-called uh, certificates and certificate issuers, whereby um, you have certificate holders, obviously, and a certificate could just be something like um, I've been KYC verified or I am from one of these countries that is allowed to transact with Amazon, for example. And then, of course, you still have the problem that if you directly you know, reveal that data to anyone, depending on how specific that certificate is, um, you could be revealing more personal information than is needed and more than you're comfortable with. So for that reason, uh, we leverage the power of zero-notch proofs, where essentially you can prove a certain aspect of a certain certificate uh, to Amazon.com, basically, showing, okay, I am not from you know, some country that Amazon.com is not allowed to interact with, or I've been KYC verified by, a, by an entity that Amazon.com trusts. And for that, I'm submitting a zero-knowledge proof. Um, and on the flip side, Amazon can basically configure their, their recipient account in elusive in such a way that they basically specify if the sender does not uh, provide a zero-knowledge proof uh, proving ownership of a certificate, uh, by the certificate issuer, for example, a certificate issuer could be a KYC authority uh, that I trust, then Elusive, please don't uh, let those funds, or rather, please don't accept that transaction and let those funds arrive at my address. And in that sense, they can sort of protect themselves from, from laundered funds. Beyond that, uh, what we've also come up with, or not really come up with, I mean, capping send amounts, I think, is a rather obvious one. but the one I find more exciting is a flagging system uh, that we're working on, which is sort of a pre-stage to, to blacklisting, I would say, so to say. Um, and the idea there basically is, is that um, as, you, as the more technical uh, users, uh, list, sorry, as the more technical listener of this podcast might know, many privacy protocols also use something called a relayer system, including us, because uh, Quick tangent, generally, if you deposit funds um, into an on-chain uh, privacy protocol and then withdraw them later using the same account you used to deposit funds into them, it's rather obvious um, yeah, that you used 
this, this privacy protocol and which one of the deposits uh, is linked to your send. You don't protect your privacy through that very much. Uh, so for that reason, usually the way the main idea is, is you deposit into an online pool. Yeah, then you generate your zero-knowledge proof and you actually send that zero-knowledge proof to a relayer, so to say, and that relayer then submits a transaction for you without editing any of the data. And we, we thought of like extending the power of this relayer in the sense that he's able to uh, flag certain, uh, certain transactions from certain uh, addresses that he might find suspicious. Um, essentially, the power that that gives us then is that when you then submit a zero-knowledge proof for saying, um, I want to use you know, a certain commitment to send money, you have to specify whether that commitment is flagged or not. And then what that essentially does is assuming that the majority of users is honest and is using non-flagged commitments, if you do end up having a flagged commitment essentially stating, you know, your commitment, uh, essentially your funds are a little bit, specif uh, are a little bit suspicious, uh, you're essentially only working with a much smaller uh, anonymity set because you might have, you know, you might have on a given day a thousand different transactions coming in, but only 10 of them are flagged. And so that means if one of your flag commitments does turn out to be, so to say, stolen funds or something wrong with them, um, when you essentially then make your, your, your withdrawal, when you, when you actually take those funds back out of the pool, through that flag, it becomes very easy for chain analysis companies, for example, to be able to say, okay, although a thousand commitments came in, since this guy's commitment was flagged, uh, we know it must have been one of these 10 commitments coming in. And that makes it far easier to track down, yeah, where your funds actually came from. Yeah, interesting. So w one quick point before we go deeper. You know, I know it's a, it's a really deep topic, but for some folks who are maybe a bit less initiated into the whole privacy world, uh, would you mind just briefly outlining the, the concept with the zero knowledge proof? Absolutely. So the idea with zero knowledge proof is basically uh, it's a way to prove that you have knowledge of a certain piece of information without actually revealing that piece of information. Um, and for me, when I first heard that sentence, I thought it was a bit confusing. So I think it's best explained with an example. Um, and for example, uh, let's say I have a where's Waldo picture, basically, um, where I have a bunch of people, a bunch of different scenery and somewhere on there is Waldo. And now I say to you, uh, Louis, I know where Waldo is. And then you'd say, well, Nico, how can you prove that to me? And traditionally, the way I'd prove that to you is by pointing out to you, here he is, you know, and pointing to, to his face. Um, but of course, let's say I don't want to, I want to prove to you that I know where Waldo is without actually telling you where Waldo is. And a way I could do that is by, you know, taking a big piece of cardboard, cutting a tiny hole in there that's just the size of, of Waldo's head, and basically putting that piece of cardboard between the two of us, uh, grabbing my picture where all the people are on, including Waldo, and holding exactly the spot where Waldo is up to that hole. And through that, basically, you don't know if I'm holding, you know, the lower corner of the picture uh, to that hole, or if I'm holding the center of the picture to that hole. But you do know that since I'm holding the correct part of the picture to the hole, I must know where Waldo is. But using that information alone, you can't essentially find out uh, where Waldo is. So that way, I've proven to you that I know a certain piece of information without actually revealing that information to you. Yeah. <laughs> that's the main idea of a zero knowledge proof. Yeah, I think that's a that, that's a very helpful example. So, in terms of the 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 flagging, I'm wondering sort of how do you think about getting the balance right there, right? Because you on the one side you want to be compliant and you want to present the way that you're protecting people's financial uh, privacy, but it seems like inevitably at some point there's a bit of a tension between 
you know, compliance versus um, protecting people's people's privacy. Is there a tension there for you? And like, how do you think about that? Yeah, we definitely think there's tension there. Um, and that's actually why we decided on, you know, more of a flagging system rather than a, a complete blacklisting system. Uh, because the advantage of such a flagging system is basically what a flag is basically supposed to represent is not supposed to represent we're 100% sure that um, this address or these funds are tainted. It's supposed to represent there's a strong suspicion that there's something wrong with these funds. And then basically the idea then is, is that later when those funds uh, flow back out of the system, um, since we know through the zero knowledge proof um, that those funds were flagged at some point, um, that makes it easy for investigators or you know, other chain analysis companies to be able to track where those uh, flagged funds are, are being taken. Um, it also makes it easy for, for them to track um, yeah, who they most likely came from since the flagged set is significantly smaller than the total anonymity set. Um, and then later on, uh, essentially the idea of that is, is that if later there's a confirmation, okay, we know these funds, you know, were, were not unsafe or, you know, this was an incorrect flag or something like this, uh, the flag can be removed. Um, on the flip side, however, um, until then, the idea is, because of course you could then say, well, if the funds are, you know, not that anonymous when they flow through the first time, why not send them through a second time? Maybe this time they won't get flagged. Um, and through that, you can gain anonymity. But the idea is basically, if you have funds that are already flagged, that's recorded on the blockchain on the public ledger forever. And through that, the realers can say, okay, flagged funds try to be sent through again. I just reject it unless I found some sort of proof uh, that these flagged funds were, um, yeah, were basically deflagged, were basically deemed uh, safe. So yeah, I do think to some extent, uh, there's always gonna be tension between, you know, full decentralization um, and situations like this where uh, you need to give up a little bit of that for compliance. Um, but yeah, my opinion on that is I think to some extent that in this case, the trade-off is okay because of the benefits that you gain from, you know, being able to protect yourself against illicit use. Um, and that something like this is necessary if we do want privacy to really be used for mainstream adoption, similar to how HTTPS is, um, versus it being like this like kind of rogue, not that much adopted thing until now that people are maybe to some extent a little bit scared of using as well, especially when they hear the news of, you know, people facing severe punishment for using something like Tornado Cash. Yeah, I'd love to chat about that a bit more in a second. But first, I wanted to pick up on the integration point. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that you can't share details about who's who's going to be launch partner with you uh, in a month time. But could you just broadly give us an indication of what kinds of integrations you're looking to do for Elusive? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the most of our launch partners um, are actually yeah our wallets or some of the uh, or some of the great wallets in in the Solana ecosystem. Uh, the reason we decided on having those launch partners uh, first up basically um, is because we thought, okay, what's an application that almost everyone uses when they interact with with a public blockchain you know at first we thought okay maybe you know nft platforms a lot of people use nfts but then we thought okay a lot of people also like trading on DeFi. but what does everyone need when they be it trading DeFi, be it you know buying your favorite new nft or lending or whatever you like to do on the solana blockchain almost everyone does that through a wallet so we thought if we can essentially make this wallet native make this something that's inside of your wallet and easy to use that's probably a way with which we can capture you know give access to the most users right from the get-go especially if we make it in such an easy way and to give you like a quick run-through of like how that's actually going to look like once it's inside of 
hopefully uh, one of the wallets that you that you use. Um, it's basically really just going to be a matter of uh, you have a little extra button that says top up my private balance, so to say. Um, and there you can like click the button. You can say, okay, I want to top up my private balance, my hidden balance on chain with let's say five soul, for example. So you click that, it tops it up for you. Um, yes, yeah, as a transaction. And then later when you look at your wallet, um, instead of just having your balance uh, or rather your assets where you can see, okay, I have, you know, 10 soul in my wallet. Now it's going to say I have 10 soul in my wallet and I have maybe five soul that I just topped up um, inside of my private balance. And then when you want to send money to someone else, um, you go to the little send tab, uh, you enter your friend's uh, address, you enter how much you want to send to them. And at the bottom, you have a little slider that says send privately or send publicly. If you do send publicly, it just sends a normal Solana transaction. If you do send privately, it generates a zero knowledge proof for you, uh, sends it to Elusive, Elusive verifies it, and so on, and basically transfers the funds from your private balance. Um, yeah, and we think this is like a really nice flow to have simply because for most users, this is something that's, yeah, very easy to use. Like you don't have to think too much about it. You just look down at the little slider. You say, okay, do I want to send privately? Is this a transaction I want to keep hidden? Or is this something I'm okay with everyone being able to see? I also saw that you guys posted a video which was very intuitive for people who are new to privacy. Uh, could you share some more details around that? Yeah, I'd love to. So the video is probably the privacy solution or compliance solution rather I'm most excited about that we were able to come up with, which you can sort of think of like choosable privacy by the network. Um, and yeah, let me tell you about more of the technical details behind it. Um, so first, uh, what you have to consider is on our network, we have something called the outcasts. And outcasts are basically a list of addresses uh, stored on the blockchain uh, that essentially the elusive network participants have decided are not deserving of privacy. So an outcast might, for example, be some address uh, that acquired a lot of funds because they hacked some DeFi protocol. Um, an outcast is a list that is append only that um, essentially accounts can be added to by elusive network participants uh, voting on it with at least 65% uh, consensus. Uh, next, the next thing we have to consider to explain the system is uh, what is a trust execution environment. So a trust execution environment is on a piece of hardware. Uh, you, you can think of it really like a black box. Although it is on the hardware, it can't really interact with the rest of the operating system. So basically, you can feed things in um, and you can get results back out. But the outside computer that this trust execution environment is running on cannot see how this data is being computed or what is stored inside of the trust execution environment and so on. And finally, what we have to consider for the system is that we have something called a network public key that everyone can see and a network private key that is only uh, ever stored inside of trust execution environments. So then the system we have is that we have our uh, relayers or as we like to call them wardens. And some of these wardens will have a trust execution environment running on them. And inside of this trust execution environment is the network private key stored. And now when an elusive, when someone tries to top up their balance in the elusive pool, um, they actually use a network public key to encrypt the address um, that they initially made, uh, that the funds initially came from into the transaction, into the commitment that is stored on chain. And then later when they use that commitment to uh, send money back out of the pool, um, they still have that encrypted uh, like value somehow essentially stored inside of that transaction meaning that it is technically there, but no one can really do anything with that value unless it gets decrypted. And the reason that this is useful is that for a normal user, having this like encrypted value as part of their commitment scheme 
uh, doesn't really make a difference because an external user for them is just a random list, uh, you know, just a random array of bytes that they can't really do anything with. However, if we have an outcast, what we can do is we can say, okay, we know the outcast, or rather, we know the illegal actor um, probably sent their funds within like this list of let's say 1,000 transactions. We're pretty sure like some of them belong to an outcast, but we're not sure which. And now what we can do is we can take these 1,000 transactions and we can feed it into the trust execution environment of one of the wardens that has the network private key stored. And then this trust execution environment is able to fetch the outcast list from the blockchain and compare it, so to say, with the transactions we just fed in. And inside of the trust execution environment, uh, the warden then uh, decrypts all these values. Keep in mind that as this is running inside of the trust execution environment, the actual warden or the person running with the warden can't actually see this, which is the whole uh, use case of using this trust execution environment for this and essentially can decrypt all these transactions and can see the original senders, but, and can then compare this with the outcast list. Then if it sees, okay, this transaction belongs to, you know, some address that is not on the outcast list, it just returns nothing or, you know, yeah, doesn't return anything. However, if it sees this transaction belongs to someone that is an outcast, it returns, okay, this was the transaction and this is the outcast essentially that is stored and associated with this transaction. And so the reason this is very useful is that the systems I had previously described essentially prevents bad actors from entering the system and make it very difficult. But through this system, uh, what is very interesting is that if some bad actor, you know, you know, does like works very hard and like finds some crazy way to get around it and whatnot, at some point they will still be tracked down. For the reason that the elusive network or you know the network participants in general usually have pretty strong consensus that when a hack happens which account actually did it. Which means that account will be added to the outcast eventually and eventually the transactions will be parsed and eventually a transaction that was associated with that specific outcast uh, will be revealed. Uh, meaning the outcast will be found out and meaning, yeah, bad actors hopefully stand a very little chance of actually using elusive for something that the network deems uh, malicious. So a couple of questions that come from that from my side. Uh, firstly, is it a it's a it's a it's a measure to be able to flag addresses like once the values the the tokens have been withdrawn from elusive so that then like that new address can be blacklisted or is it like a preventative measure where the transaction or or the um the the inputs will be decrypted prior to the bad actor withdrawing the funds um sort of in the middle um essentially the idea would be that uh, and a, uh, essentially, uh, a transaction doesn't necessarily have to be decrypted at any point. It's only if there is very strong suspicion that, you know, in an array of transactions, one of them belong to a bad actor, uh, you can feed those in later and essentially have them decrypted at that point. Um, what's important to mention about this as well is that although some wardens will need to run the trust execution environment for them to uh, essentially store that private key and be, have the ability to potentially decrypt transactions uh, that belong to outcasts later, um, you don't actually need a trust execution environment to, to run a warden, which still allows us to maintain decentralization. Okay, and uh, in terms of, like, is there a reason why you wouldn't uh, run, like, all inputs against the blacklist? Or is it, like, like w can you take me through the scenario where you would imagine that, like, the, the blacklist would be, would be checked in the trust execution environment? Sure. So, yeah, let me take you to the counter side for a second. So, for example, let's say we, um, 
because we can always see all the people entering the elusive like pool and depositing money into it. But what we can see is, of course, um, if the funds flowing out, who they initially belong to. So in the case that you know we see, okay, uh, no hacks have happened recently, um, and just normal people are using the elusive pool. There isn't really much reason to send it through the uh, through the trust execution environment and potentially search for outcasts, uh, just because yeah we didn't see any suspicious activity entering the pool initially. However, the counterpart to this would be is let's say um, as has happened in the past, unfortunately, uh, some DeFi protocol has a bunch of money locked into it, and unfortunately some hacker finds some way to you know hack this protocol and steal a bunch of money into into his personal account. Um, oftentimes, what hackers would do in the past is since with this like with their personal accounts it's associated to the hack um, they obviously can't just withdraw it to some centralized exchange and exchange it for fiat currency or actually use that money uh, with other with other platforms so that reason what hackers generally did is they would use some privacy protocol and essentially have their address that is now you know everyone on the network knows is bad because it was involved with the hack send it through some privacy network and get it back on the other side meaning they would have all their funds on one fresh address or a list of fresh addresses. And you know, since it went through a mixer or something like that, it's very difficult to now track down that these fresh addresses actually have money stemming from the hack. The idea of this system then would be, is we would see, okay, someone stole you know, $10 million from some DeFi protocol or something like that. Um, they deposit into the elusive, uh, elusive pool. And, um, you know, and we also saw like, an array of, uh, of transactions going back out because, for example, let's say the hacker decides instead of putting 10 million in and sending 10 million back out, he sends 10 million in and then like sends it out in like chunks of I don't know $10,000 or something like that. What you could then do is we could take every transaction that happened in a certain time frame, essentially going out of the pool, um, where we have a strong, where yeah, where we think okay, there's a good chance that some of these might have belonged to the hacker, and send those basically to one of our wardens implementing a trust execution environment, who would then compare these to the list of outcasts. Assuming, of course, we added the original address of the hacker to the list of outcasts prior. And through that, then, we'd be able to see, okay, for example, transaction number three that came out um, in our array of transactions that we're verifying is actually associated uh, with the original account of the, of the hacker, which means then we could see, okay, transaction number three, which belonged to the original hacker, since we uncovered it and the original hacker is an outcast, uh, went to address A. And now for the address having sent it through uh, for the hacker having sent his funds through elusive is useless now because you know he sent his funds from his original account he thought privately to the new account A but now we know account A actually belongs to the hacker meaning he's back at step one where he now owns a wallet which has a bunch of money on it but it's still directly linked to the hack meaning he still can't do anything with it. Okay, yeah, it makes makes a lot of sense, and I can imagine that having this functionality known will in itself be like a um you know a preventative measure that dissuades bad actors from actually using the service in the very beginning uh one last question which i'm interested some folks who are paying attention maybe more on the eth side and they're familiar with uh like layer two roll-ups they might be familiar with the fact that like proving machines are quite intensive um how how intensive is it to run like a, a trust execution environment for the wardens Yes, yeah, so running trust, of course, running computation inside a trust execution environment is you're always working with more uh, limited hardware than if you're running directly on your native operating system. Um, yeah, but however, for that reason, we just try to keep computation as limited as uh, possible in the trust execution environment, keeping it to the bare minimum there. And next to that, as mentioned, what's important to consider 
is that the trust execution environment um, is only ever used sort of in the fail-safe worst case scenario where someone does send uh, illegal funds to Elusive. Uh, meaning it's not actually, like if you're a normal user using uh, Lucive and you're not doing anything illegal, which I assume will be the majority of people, uh, the tr you don't even touch, like none of what you interact with Elusive ever interacts with the trust execution environment. Trust execution environment was only ever used in the case, as mentioned, when uh, we have Elusive transactions and we want to essentially, uh, you know, find out if there's any outcasts in them. And the fortunate thing is, even if that might be a little bit slower, this isn't necessarily so much time constrained as usually, as mentioned, the use case for this would be that uh, you know a bad actor went through the system and now we're trying to figure out who he is. Even if it takes a couple minutes to parse through the transactions and find out who the actor is, um, at the end of the day, we'll still know who that bad actor is. So, yeah, since it doesn't really affect the um, since it doesn't really affect the normal usage of the Lucid protocol, um, I don't think performance constraints on that end are too big of a worry for us. So. Let's move on to the recent event, because I'm sure a lot of people have Tornado Cash in their mind here. I mean, privacy, as we said before, there's constantly attention and there's been moments in the past where things have flared up. Uh, but recently, it was quite extraordinary where Tornado Cash was, was actually sanctioned uh, and it was removed from GitHub. And we've just recently heard that one of, it seems like or the rumor is that one of the developers was, was picked up in Amsterdam and will be charged. So it's definitely a really, really current topic. So I'd like to approach this and hear from you how you see things playing out going forward. Maybe like the positive the positive uh, picture of how things could go. And then like also if you could paint a picture on the negative side, if we fail to adopt privacy technology, how you think things play out. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, um, yeah, Trader Cash News as like, so for me personally, definitely not something I was too happy to hear because in my opinion, it's not really the right way to go about that. It reminds me a little bit of um, like the crypto wars people sort of had um, with the US government as well, like 20, 30 years ago where you weren't allowed to export keys for encryption of a certain size and so on. Um, and I really don't think that's like, yeah, that's really not the direction I want privacy to go into simply because yeah, of course, I'm a bit biased in the sense, but I do think privacy for blockchains is incredibly important if you want mainstream adoption. Um, and just, you know, to name a couple of couple of use cases where I think it's super important. It's like I said already, like payments, super important, obviously. Uh, but beyond that as well, um, if you look at Solana, one of the things I'm most bullish about on Solana is through its speed, it really being able to uh, replace the finan financial system we have right now and making it more open to previously underprivileged groups, making it more efficient on all levels, so to say. Uh, whether you're buying a $5 coffee or whether you know, you're making a multi-million dollar equity trade. However, I don't think that's possible without having privacy on the one hand with the, with the payments, obviously, but also with general, um, general finance, financial transactions. Simply for the reason that I do think that uh, big financial institutions are most likely not going away. And I think the, the best merger, so to say, is to have those financial institutions uh, move their infrastructure over to, to, to the public blockchain um, and leverage, you know, the great DeFi protocols that we have. However, they're likely not going to do that if you look at past examples, like, you know, especially with the couple, last couple of months with like Three Arrows Capital or Celsius or stuff like this, where essentially, you know, we do like to meme on them, but we did see examples where, for example, Three Arrows Capital would get liquidated in one of their positions um, if one of their uh, 
you know, if the value of a certain asset that they held fell below a certain value. Um, and this was something that was visible to everyone on the chain, which meant, you know, the competitors could, and also other people could automatically manipulate the price in order to get them liquidated. And in cases like Three Hours Capital, where um, it was just, well, not just, but like it was a lot of institutional money being lost, people like to joke about it. But for me, like a case that I personally think is, you know, more bad in a way is the is the Celsius case where it wasn't a lot of institutionals losing money, but rather a lot of individuals. Um, and I do think to some extent, the price manipulation that you can have through not having a private financial system in some cases uh, caused that. And, you know, institutionals are likely aware of this as well and, you know, would not move to the blockchain without privacy. So yeah, in a strong case, I think like, basically just to, to close the loop on that again, like in a strong case, I think the blockchain systems that we have today truly do have the power to, rep to, to replace the financial systems that we had in the past and that haven't worked in certain cases and to make them better, more efficient and more accessible overall. But I don't think that's possible without privacy. Um, and the flip side of that is, is that of course you could say, well, what if you have more weak adoption of privacy to so to say, because all the things I've mentioned so far about like having privacy, having it in a manner that's compliant, having it in a manner that, you know, is efficient. Technically, like if you look purely on paper, you don't necessarily need zero knowledge proofs for that. Like a lot of what I described, you can also do that simply by having not your own key pair, but rather managing all your money in a centralized exchange where it's essentially part of one key pair that belongs to the exchange. Um, and basically the exchange just has a database in which they keep track of uh, how much money you have, how much money other people have, but you can't see each other's money because officially it's all stored in one specific, uh, in one key pair belonging to the centralized exchange. However, in my eyes, uh, I think if we end up in a system like that, I would be very disappointed because that sort of then ends up very similar to the financial system we already have. So yeah, bring it back together. I think no privacy at all in future, in future blockchain systems. I don't think that's gonna work at all. <laughs> um, weak adoption in the sense where centralized exchanges essentially provide the privacy. Um, I think it would be quite disappointing because then we would miss out on a huge opportunity that you know, blockchain technology is presenting us with. And strong adoption can really yeah, change the world for the better. That's really interesting. So you actually see privacy as a required prerequisite to actual full adoption of, of blockchain. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, yeah, as mentioned, like you can't, I don't think you can make financial, uh, financially sound transactions with actually having big institutions and big players in the field. Um, if they know that their competitors are seeing their every move, you know, and also for the little man, if you're making a transaction, if you're, you know, buying a coffee at the coffee shop and the coffee shop owner knows how much money you have, not only is it uncomfortable, but that can technically also bring greater difficulty with it. For example, let's say you're in a country where, uh, or, in a, or in a certain place uh, where criminal, where crime rates are higher. And then you, you know, there's a local Starbucks at the corner. Um, what could a criminal do? He could pay there. He could see, okay, this, you know, the Starbucks is receiving money with this specific address. Then he waits outside the Starbucks, wait until a guy goes in, buys his coffee. And every single person that buys a uh, coffee, he checks their address and he sees, oh, you know, this guy has a lot of money on there. Let me go rob him. So I just don't think like essentially it being uncomfortable is like the best problem to have. And it being generally dangerous is the worst problem to have when uh, speaking of not having enough privacy with blockchains. Yeah, and I mean, it, get, it can get really nefarious. Like imagine you book an Airbnb and then that Airbnb host knows how much money you have while you're inside their, their accommodation. 
uh, definitely, I mean, there's a million ways you can imagine it being basically a bad, a bad news story for yourself. Nico, it's been really cool to chat with you about what Elusive is working on, and I'm really pumped to see, uh, see the release in a month's time. For folks who want to follow your progress and be alerted to the mainnet launch, could you give some details about where they can follow? Absolutely. I think the best place to follow us would be uh, our Twitter account, which is at Elusive Privacy, uh, Elusive being spelled E-L-U-S-I-V, and then Privacy. Uh, we post regular updates on there. Um, and beyond that, you can also check us out to get a bit more general information on us uh, on our website, elusive.io. Yeah, awesome. Thanks a lot, Nico, for you know doing the good fight on the privacy front and excited to see uh, how the privacy tech you guys are working on gets adopted. Thanks, Louis. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review if you're feeling generous. And I'd also like to give a brief reminder that nothing said on the podcast is financial advice. My views are my own. And when navigating crypto, remember that you are responsible for your own assets and always do your own research.